Dave Grohl, yes. That's my claim to fame. All right. Hey, one last announcement. Y'all have all heard us talk about Faith Bridge. Faith Bridge is this ministry we're doing to foster with foster children. Uh, it's been uh, really cool watching uh, lots of you get plugged into Faith Bridge, and whether it's actually doing uh, foster care, doing respite care, which is just doing work with children, like taking some children in uh, on the weekends, or uh, doing some homework with them, tutoring type stuff, or being a driver from point A to point B, whatever it is, right, or babysitting type of stuff. So we have something called uh, the Faith Bridge Encounter, and basically all it is is, is February 15th at 12.30 in the community room right here. It's just an informational meeting. It's for those of you who have not gotten connected, have been thinking about it, would love to get more information, could ask some questions on that. Chris, are you going to, is Chris going to, where are you? I saw you. Are you going to, are you here? I'm not sure if you're going to be here for that, but Chris is right here. Chris works with Faith Bridge. Raise your hand real quick. He knows everything to know about Faith Bridge. And then Janine's right here too. She works with Faith Bridge. And so all that to say, we have people who are knowledgeable. This is that meeting where all of you have said, hey, it hasn't been the right season, but I think maybe God's moving us towards that season of our life. You come, you're not signing your life off to anything except to gain information. And we're going to pray that as you're there, God will move on your heart to do something, so nothing in advance, but that you can simply come and get some information, learn all you want to know, ask all the questions you want to ask, and it'd be great. So February 15th, 12.30 in the community room, you can ask questions to these two if you have questions today. All right. So we um, so we're diving in. We've been talking about the simple fact that Jesus. Everybody pay attention. Everybody take a deep breath. Let's get into this this morning. All right. Jesus is our ideal. Right. Like he's we've said that Jesus is our ideal. We've been looking at Luke chapter three and four. We looked at Luke chapter nine and ten, working back and forth. We're kind of moving our way forward. Now we said Jesus is our ideal, that he is the model. So when you think about who you are aspiring to become like or who who you want to be, quote unquote, when you grow up, the idea is very simple. Jesus, in fact, Jesus is the only ideal that we should move after. He is the only model of a of a human being that we should pursue to become like Jesus is our model. He is our ideal. And we've been talking about, even last week, we said that, 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 we, that Jesus was empowered. The Holy Spirit lived inside of Jesus, and His Spirit empowered Him to live His life. So I want to just, I want to name for you a fallacy this morning that I want, I want you to let go of. And the fallacy is this. The fallacy would be you saying, well, Jesus was able to do those things because He's God. And it is a very true statement to say that the things that Jesus did, yes, they were, yes, he was God. But the things that Jesus did as a human being were done because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it's a very, very clear distinction. Because Jesus would never say to you, well, I could do that as a human being, but you can't because I was God. <laughs> right? No, he would say, I was God, yes. But what, in, what empowered me to do the things that I did was God's Spirit living inside of me and empowering me to do those things. And so that makes it logical and fair for then Jesus to be our model and to be our ideal because what it took for Him to do His stuff, it's in you. For those of you who know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, it's not in you. 
Right? But if you know Jesus, you're walking in relationship with him, you've turned away from your sin, you've made him Lord of your life, that the same spirit that resided in Jesus empowered him in ministry to do the things that he did now resides in you and is empowering you to move towards the model that has been expressed by Jesus. Like, right now, we should just say amen and break up into small groups and talk about that. Honestly. Because that should revolutionize how you view my life, your life, and every life around you. Because what I just told you is, Jesus didn't do his miracles because he was God. He did the miracles because he was a human being empowered by God's Spirit that now resides in you, which makes everything he did possible because he lives inside of you with the same spirit. And that, my friends, is the best news that we could ever hear. Like, that should cause you to become, like, shake in your boots and become immediately sober, but overly excited and like, are you kidding me? This is awesome. All in the same moment. So when we talk then about this idea of Jesus being our model, Jesus being our ideal, the power of the Holy Spirit being inside of us, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you a little bit of my spirit. I'm going to give you my full spirit. And he's going to reside in and live inside and flow through you. So Jesus then is our model. And we said last week that he is he that God empowered us with his spirit and with humility. He empowered us with his spirit and with his with humility. Why? So that his power would not go to our heads. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm better at you than something, I want you to know it. Right? If I'm awesome at something like so Victor and Julia are here, right? I go we go to the lake and I get on my water ski and I want to make sure that Victor knows how much better I am at him than water skiing. It's really important for our relationship. Right? That he knows how awesome I am. It's the only thing. But seriously, you know what I'm getting at, right? That we get in the moments, we get empowered, and all of a sudden it goes to our head, and power, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And so Jesus says, and absolutely, I want to give you a gift, a power of humility. I want you to live in this place of recognizing. Who I am, who you are, how limited you are, and how in need you are of me at all times. And then when you listen, people say all the time, why don't we see these things happen? One of the answers is very simple, because we're not humble enough to handle it. Because it goes to our heads too easily. And God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. That's his Bible right there. This quote in Bible. He gives grace to the humble. He pours himself out in power through the humble, the, those who are walking in the gift of humility. And so this morning we come with this beautiful picture of calling, of, of empowerment, of the gift of humility in the midst of this preparation that God does in our life of maturing us and growing us and preparing us for these 
wonderful, wonderful things that he has for us, that he's humbling us and, and allowing us to walk through trials and difficulties and hardships of many kinds to, to make us desperate and needy for him in humility, he says, at the same time, I want you all to know I'm completely comfortable offending you as I see need in your life. God loves to offend us, the caveat, for the purpose of growing us into his likeness. God loves to offend for the one purpose of growing us into his likeness. Not to offend to be the mean guy, but to offend to awaken us, to shatter untruths, to move us into his likeness. That's what we see as we continue on in the, in the, in the book of Luke. We're going to look here at Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 22 in a second. But the thing I want you to recognize about, about offense is that when God offends, what he's doing, he's coming and he's finding these areas of our lives that are broken, these areas of, of our lives that where we've, we bought into untruth, these areas of our lives where we think too much of ourselves, and he is completely fine coming and offending and breaking those walls down to bring us into his presence and create us into his image. The picture I had in, in, in preparation was this picture you've all heard of, the potter in the clay, Right? The potter in the clay, you've all heard it. And, we, and you should have thought the potter in the clay is like flutey worship behind it, music behind it. Oh, the potter in the clay. Whatever it is, right? You have this whole potter in the clay thing going on. And you're like, oh, that's such a great picture. You see this loving potter. Just and Do you know what they do with clay? They take it out and start doing this, like this, right? And they get it and they pound it, right? They pound it and they lay it out and they bring it back together and they fold it and they do all this like, and Jesus loves doing this to you, right? I mean, seriously. And it's these types of things that, that we wrestle with, that we find an offense in. Because if we're completely honest... We're pretty comfortable with the box that we've created for Jesus to live in in our lives. We, have, we're, we're, we, like to, we like to define how uncomfortable we're willing to get. We like to define where we go, what we do, who we go with, when we do it, and even how we do it. We have very, listen, and for those who have been to school to talk about God, they even know more than the rest of us about who God is, how he moves, and what he does. And so God sits here in the moments and says, well, I love you too much, Clay, to leave that in you. I'm going to break this off of you. And so I'm willing to offend you. Luke, chapter 4, starting in verse 22. Recognize, we've just had Jesus quote Isaiah 61. For the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom for the captives, set the oppressed free, right? To release those who are in bondage and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this is fulfilled in me, right? Pick it up in verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from, I guess words that came from his lips. 
and said, hmm, isn't this Joseph's son? Well, look at him. La-di-da, they asked, right? Jesus said to them, verse 23, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And then you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the whole land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of those or any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. It's outside of Israel. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Isn't that amazing? In verse 22, right, we see people very, very excited. Why? Because because Jesus had just quoted Isaiah 61. This was a very, very, very familiar scripture in this setting with these these Jews who were going to synagogue. I mean, they were they were devout. They were good church folk, right? They were good church folk. They show up at synagogue, they come in dude, to get the worship on, right? They can't get, they get in there, listen to the Bible being, being read to them. They get in there, some prayers, right? These are good church folk. And they're sitting here in synagogue, and they're listening, they're listening to Jesus read Isaiah 61, and every single one of them, listen, every single one of them understood the implications of what Jesus had just read and what he had just said. It spoke of the coming of a Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, who was coming to set them free, the Jewish nation free, from the oppressive Roman Empire. Most people were expecting that a political warrior king would rise up to return the Jewish nation to supremacy, right? And to to give it power and to return them to freedom from their evil foreign oppressor. Now you're getting the picture. Every single one of them had aspirations of a warrior king rising up, fulfilling Isaiah 61 and setting them free because... They each, listen, they each would have applied the words of Isaiah 61 to themselves. They were the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed, living under the weight of an evil Gentile Roman Empire, and they were anticipating and expecting that God was going to move like he had done in the past and completely destroy that kingdom and set up this Jewish warrior king on the throne with God as their best friend, God as their warrior, God as their defender, and they were going to kick butt and take names. That's what they anticipated. This is really important. It's important to understand this for you to understand what's happening here. Because in verse 22, it's understandable then why they'd be really, really happy and like Jesus. It says, so all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. 
Jesus was, in a sense, tickling their ears, telling them what they wanted to hear, right? They're reading from Isaiah 61, and like, yes, yes, we like this guy. I mean, he's, Jew- he's, he's, a, he's the carpenter's son. It's kind of odd. He calls himself the Messiah. But, I mean, it's true. It's awesome, right? So, yeah, yeah, we like that. That's right. We are oppressed. Yes, we are prisoners to the evil Roman Empire. Set us free, right? They're living in this. They love it. They love what's being said. They're applying, this is important, in a very selfish way, they're applying the scripture to themselves, recognizing that they see themselves as the oppressed and the prisoner, waiting to be released. They're waiting for the year of the Lord's favor. But then Jesus, doing what Jesus does, he starts kind of messing things up a little bit. He says, well, surely, surely you're going to say to me someday, physician, heal yourself. Which literally means one day you're going to look at me and say, you prove yourself worthy as a physician. Prove yourself that you truly are a physician. One of the ways of saying it is you're going to prove to us that you are who you say you are by healing your people rather than just outsiders. That's kind of what it's saying. Basically, you're going to prove yourself to us. That you're, you're the physician. And then Jesus says, well, one day you're going to say to me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. So as you read to the next uh, chapter, or next uh, set of verses in Luke this week, I want you to recognize immediately after this, Jesus goes to Capernaum and does some pretty cool miracles. And so what's happening here is Jesus is naming the coming tension specifically between his people and his town and himself, but even more widely with all of those who will not receive his message. He is naming the coming offense. He's telling them, you're going to be offended. I am going to offend you. You're going to say to me, well, you did that over there. Why don't you do it here, Jesus? That's not fair. Do you love them more? Then Jesus, in the moment, he retells, this is important, again, he's retelling very familiar stories. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase them if we just read them to here. First, he's going to come in the moment. He says, all right, I'm going to remind you of two miracles that happened in the Old Testament. One involved Elijah. One involved Elijah in verse 25, right? Who went to Sidon, a Gentile city, and he saved a widow who was in need, bypassing lots of widows who were in Israel. It wasn't just one widow. There were thousands of them, probably in Israel, and he bypassed all of them in obedience to God and went to a forgotten Gentile widow in a Gentile, non-Jewish city. In fact, they hated people who lived in Sidon. I mean, literally, despised them. Second-class citizens. And that's who God sent them to. Second thing, the second story, involved Naaman, a military leader of the hated Gentile Syrians who was healed of leprosy, And Elisha bypassed lots of leper colonies and other lepers 
to get to the Syrian official to heal him. I mean, this is scandalous. So Jesus pulling this out because what he's doing is celebrating the work of Elisha in that God healed a man who literally was persecuting and attacking those in Israel. This is crazy talk. And in about 30 seconds, Jesus goes from being loved to being hated so badly that it tells us in verse 28, 29, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. I mean, this is one of those chapters we scratch our heads about sometimes. In six verses, in a matter of 30 seconds, he goes from being unbelievably loved to massively offending them intentionally in obedience to God to the point they want to kill him. And that's crazy. What? I mean, we could see here all day. Like, I would, like, if we had time, if we were a small group, I'd then say, all right, talk about it. what do you think happened here, right? Because this is crazy. Did Jesus really do anything that, that demanded in their minds this idea of throwing Jesus off the cliff? In their mind, yes. So what I want to talk about this morning was what did Jesus do that offended them so badly? Number one, he attacked their selfish view of God. He attacked their selfish view of God. In these stories, Jesus is making a simple point. God did not and will not only bless his people. That's the point he's making. I want you guys to recognize in synagogue today that Elisha and Elijah, two prophets you put on the prophetic pedestal, they are up here, equivalent maybe to a Moses. You look up to them, you tell stories about them, you love them. I want you to know, in obedience to God, they left God's chosen people to go to God's other chosen people. He left, the, he left good Christian folk to go down here to the broken and forgotten and the hated. And that was God's will, right? He will bless all people. Why? So they will know his goodness. And so they will, in knowing his goodness, they will then turn to him for salvation. This is a huge deal. Jesus is saying God will move in the lives of the hated Gentiles who have persecuted, who have oppressed them for centuries, who trampled on their holy land, who have stolen its wealth, and who are officially outsiders. When they understood this reality of not of recognizing they don't have some unique special access to God as being better than anyone, they got furious because they viewed themselves being more important, having special favor, and being more loved by God than anyone else in the world. He's breaking down their selfishness. See, they viewed God primarily in light of what he would do for them, completely missing how God wanted to move through them on behalf of others who were in need. How often do we have an offense with God that is birthed out of this attitude that God owes us something? 
How many times have we been offended because God moves in an unexpected way or does not move in the way we think that he should and our selfishness around him? God, oh God, you should do this. You need to do this because don't you see who I am? Completely missing the fact that God saves us. Listen, God saves us for himself. Do you recognize, even in our gospel messages in church today, how self-oriented and how selfish our evangelism is? Give your life to Jesus and you won't go to hell. Selfish, all about me. Give your life to Jesus and you'll live in eternity eternity with Jesus. All about self. Give your life to Jesus and... And he will give you joy and he will make your life complete. Selfish. And so we turn salvation into being about me and what God will do for me because life is all about me. And I want you to recognize that is a fruit of salvation. But God saved you for himself so that you would be used by him for his divine calling to give your life away to those who don't know him. Does that make sense? And so our entire evangelistic message for the last 30 years has actually been birthed out of our own selfishness. It's better advertising than saying, give your life to Jesus so you can die to yourself and give everything to him. No, we say, hey, get saved. It's the cool thing to do. No, get saved and you'll be happy. He'll give you happiness. I promise. Trust me. I'm so happy. Selfishness defines so much of our calling. We are over here looking for our divine miracle. Saying, God, where are you? God, you got to come. He's saying, I'm actually over here calling you to give your life away to those who need me. I've already blessed you with eternal life. They are dying and going to hell. Stop focusing on yourself. Do you see that? I'm not trying to be mean. Like I'm, like, I'm convicted in this myself. I got saved under the message, become a Christian and you will live. Listen, I remember sitting with Andy Aaron. I was nine, I was nine years old. He said, what does it mean to be a Christian? I said, it means you, means you pray a lot and you can go to heaven. It's awesome. That was my, that was my message. That's, that was my evangelism, right? But the idea is God saying, you've got to die to selfishness. You see how Jesus, how God, how... I sent Elijah and Elisha to bypass those who already knew me, but who needed me to go to those who needed me even more. Now, just press pause for those of you getting offended in the sense of, well, God doesn't love me. Of course he does, and he wants to move in your life. But he's looking for a selfless, humble people to move in who are saying, yes, I want, I want the Lord. But even more so, I want to give the Lord away to those who don't know him, who are hurting and broken. That's Jesus. That's the model of Jesus. He wanted all the Father had to offer him, but his life was devoted to being obedient to the call of the Father. Do you see that that dynamic tension? He wants to give, but we focus too much on this why I'm saying the other part. Just qualifying to help you out this morning. So we keep on going. Number two. What did Jesus do to defend him so badly? Well, first, he attacked the selfish view of God. Second, he attacked the religion. 
Everyone knows when you go to a dinner party, you don't talk about politics or about religion. How many times have I gotten to play referee at a dinner party? Because I'm the pastor. And I'm looking at them and going, you're both idiots, okay? You're both wrong. But I'll say that, right? I'm loving them, right? We all love church. We all love what we love about church. We all have our own convictions. We've been, we have been raised in the Bible. We've been taught the Bible. We've been taught what it means to know Jesus. We've been taught who Jesus is. We know all these pieces. And then in the, in the midst of a loving conversation, someone says something that we don't agree with, and we immediately we want to fight. We want to attack them. We want to make sure that we get a point across to honor Jesus. And so we become a complete jerk. With no love, no compassion, because religion, the Pharisees had, religion pops up, and we want to kill them. Just like they wanted to kill Jesus. Because into the moment, he stepped and said, basically, you've been taught your entire life, that Gentiles are bad, they are not chosen, that Jews are better than everyone else, they're the chosen ones, that you really represent the needy of Isaiah 61. Gentiles are hated, they're unclean, and we should never associate with them. That's what they've been taught. Good religion. There's some Old Testament Bible backing to that belief. Missing the whole story of God's redemption. That he wanted to graft them in, completely missing the whole story. Allowing religion to pop up to the point they literally wanted to bypass law and go kill him. Jesus had dared to violate, violate their religious prejudice. Their long-time way of doing things and their long-time beliefs. You see, when we look at our life, You have to recognize this very truth, and you all need to hear this. Each of us, unfortunately, are wrong about something we hold very near and dear to our hearts in regards to Christianity and the faith. Every single one of us is wrong, probably a lot more than we think we actually are. In fact, the things you are probably most sure about in the area of beliefs, you probably don't fully understand, and you're in error in some way. Because as we look at Christianity, we look at Jesus, you have to remember, there's a very, very, very clear difference between truth and belief. Truth are things that are eternal. Belief is something we hold until we are proven wrong. Truth equals Jesus is the only way to the Father. That is a biblical, foundational, spiritual truth that we will land on no matter what strain of Christianity we come from. Jesus Christ is the only way to get to the Father. A belief would be this. A person has to be fully immersed and dunked underwater to to truly be baptized. Was Jesus fully dunked? Let's be completely honest. It's split half and half among evangelical Christians. Some, because here's the deal. In the day of John the Baptist, the actual way of baptizing was to put someone in a river, get a conch shell, fill it up with water, and then come over and pour it on their heads. 
That's, that's, that's how they used to do it. Now, was he fully immersed? Well, let's be completely honest. We weren't there. And we have no idea. But we do know one thing. He was baptized, praise God. Our religion tells us to fight for one of the other sides. Jesus says, focus on truth. Because the reality is, whether you're baptized or not, or no matter how you're baptized, salvation is found in faith in God alone, not some act. And baptism, my friends, is an act. We do it. So pause. How many of you are a little frustrated right now? How many of you, I'm pushing the button. How many of you all of a sudden taking a belief that you've held on to and you fought for it tooth and nail? I'm looking at you going, to be honest with you, you have no biblical basis to stand on. Jesus didn't say, get fully immersed. He just said, get baptized. In 130, 140, 170, 50, something like that, A.D., something was written called the Didache. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. And it was the first established um, written document that tells you how to do church. And in it, it talks about baptism. And I love this. Because it's so practical. It says, if you live in an arid desert country where there is not much water and it's impossible to be immersed, then take whatever type of water you have and just put it on your head and sprinkle it over a person. Have you ever thought about that? We have an excess of water, so we're completely fine. It's completely wasteful in the desert to take a little bit of water and dunk somebody. So they say, whatever doesn't matter, as long as you're baptized. So Steve, is the message about baptism? No, it's a, it's, a, it's a message about truth. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. In comparison to things out here that are beliefs, that we don't make major things. Bob Tuttle, a friend and professor of mine, once said this. I had to write a paper on this. He said, what is the least a person can believe and still get into heaven? I had to write a paper on that. It was only two pages long. Fourteen font, because I was in a hurry. <laughs> Bought in those margins just a little bit. Like that, right? Two pages. I got a 100. That's what you know that. I'm awesome. Right? <laughs> and he said, it's maybe less than you think, and if so, the other things are not things we should have as our primary focus. His point is saying, you focus on truth that saves a person, and everything else, you can talk about it and argue it, but it should never be something that divides. It should never be something that causes you to have disunity. It's something that you just say, you know what? My beliefs, I believe this. I know you believe this. But the truths that we land on are evident. Jesus Christ is the only way to get to the Father. He was born as a human being. He was fully God. He lived. He died. And praise God, he was resurrected. And anyone now who will call on his name and believe that can be saved. And to force anyone to have to bow down and serve something else of our beliefs and our own personal convictions is religion. Doesn't mean we can't talk about it. Doesn't mean they're not important. But here's a, for my good charismatic friends, let me ask you this question. Which is more important, important to ask somebody? 
Have you repented of your sins and given your life to him and following him as Lord, or do you speak in tongues every day? Which one's more important? I know people who would rather talk about this than this. And I look at them and say, I don't really want to hang out with you because I have better things to do with my time. Do you see this difference? And Jesus is attacking this. The heart of this one is very simple. And hear this. God hates boxes. He will not let you or anyone else place him in one. He is always tearing down religion and our hearts so we can truly know the living Jesus. The question we have to ask is my offense that I have in a moment birthed out of an attack on eternal truth that's necessary for salvation or a questioning of my personal beliefs. Our takeaways are very simple. I'm going to run through them very quickly. Number one, God will continually offend our religious thoughts and ideals. He is tearing down religion so that we can fully know him and be fully used by him. Uh, Listen, our beliefs that we make more important than truth literally act as barriers for God's spirit moving through us. The second thing. God will continually offend our selfishness. So often we know, we've already said it, our salvation, we make our salvation all about what God will do for me, how he can save me, for God and he saved us for himself to give us a call that we are to fulfill, empowered in humility by the Holy Spirit. God will continually offend our selfishness. In the story, their plan for God revolved around what God would do for them, or more succinctly revolved around what God was supposed to do for them. God, listen, God came to save the broken, not just the broken parts of you. That's important. God came to save the broken, not just the broken parts of you. Yes, he will save your broken parts. He will move. But when we make it only about that and we just have our gaze here on miracle God for me in my time when I want it. And when he doesn't, I get offended because he's been over here all the time saying, I will do that. But I first am calling you to do this. And I can only bless those who are obedient. Did you just catch that? That was good stuff right there. God says, we're looking so over here. He says, I want to. But I can't because your disobedience and fulfilling my call on your life is literally hindering my spirit moving in your life. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble who walk, recognizing my salvation is not for me, it's for him. The third thing, I love this one, but it goes with the box piece. God is not tame. God is not tame nor can he be tamed. That is one of my favorite moments in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Chronicles of Narnia. When Lucy looks at Mr. Tumnus and, and looking at Aslan, the Christ figure, and says, Is Aslan a tame lion? He goes, No, 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 no. He is not tame. But in my mind, he has this like sly look going, But he is good. He is not tame. He cannot be tamed. He has no box. You cannot put him in one. But by God, he is good. And we worship him. 
We are capable of becoming too familiar with Jesus, thinking he is more tame than he is, thinking we have understanding, thinking we understand all things about him, thinking, well, yes, we are under, we, we are up here on the higher plane, we are the chosen people, we are the holy ones. Yes, this is it right here. This is who God is. This is how he works. This is what he does. This is how he's about to move in your life. Watch this. Bam. Wait, wait, hold a second. Bam. Jesus, bam, did the move. No, he cannot be tamed. We cannot become too familiar with him. We recognize throughout Scripture, listen, that wherever Jesus went, feathers were ruffled, people were offended, and upheaval occurred. There is no confusion. There is no disorder in Jesus. He does not bring those things, however... There is a holy disruption that follows Jesus everywhere he goes that brings God's perfect order. And yes, many times it will seem like disorder. Because when he moves, he offends and he causes people to get so uptight and so upset that they're willing to kill someone in something, namely him. And so in our calling... And the preparation that God does and the humility that he wants to birth inside of us, he will offend us in the area of selfishness. He will offend us in the area of our pride and think we know everything about religion. He will offend us and move because he is not tame. And in these moments, then we come and it should lead us to not be like those people. May it never be said about me that I was one who wanted to kill Jesus' vision. I want to say, God, every day, where is my selfishness and where is my religion? My wrong thoughts about you. God, what am I making a major thing that I need to shift because this is the major thing? This morning is worth... We're going to go ahead and invite the harvest to come. We're going to worship, have ministry time, and pray. And all I want you to do this morning is this. God is putting his finger on, on these things. Why? Because he's called us to more than we have, and he's called us to go places that we're not going. He's calling us to those who are broken and need, recognizing he loves all of us. We are, we are special as everyone else is special. We are created in his image as all are created in his image. We are loved as all are loved. And his desire is that all would know him. And so we come in humility today and say, God, if I've been offended by you, then I want to ask your forgiveness for fighting. How have we been offended? What has God not done? That is literally for maybe 30 years ago. It's literally kept us from believing him, from really, really trusting him and going after him. What is it that, that, that God wants to do inside of you of, of humbling you? What is it that he needs to bring healing? Because, see, I've been so hurt that I just, I need, I, 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 I'm longing for healing so I can be used in this way. What does it need to repent of saying, I've been looking so this way? But I have yet, I have never engaged this. I made it all about me, I made it all about my kids, all about my relationship, all about my calling, all about my purpose, all about mine. And God wants to come this morning and say, I'm not angry with you. He was not angry with his people. He said He didn't say he didn't curse them and ran off real fast. He said, 
He just walked through them. I don't want God to walk through us as we look at Him with glaring eyes, frustrated and angry. This morning you respond. We have, for those of you who are new, we have offering baskets here. We don't pass them around. So if you came this morning ready to give right here, we have communion over here. We invite you to come and to take communion. It's an act of humility of recognizing who Jesus is. We have ministry teams who will be on both sides just to pray for whatever is ailing you. We're asking God to pour His Spirit out with working of miracles.